Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Honored to have with us today the director of this new film, and it's called Soy Nero and uh, Rafi Pitts. He's uh, such acclaimed films as The Fifth Season, Sanam, um, also what uh, Abel Ferreira, Not Guilty, a documentary that uh, garnered all kinds of awards um, and other great films. And this is a, just one in a, num- the, in a line of films that uh, very compelling, as I said, very compelling drama. Um, so we're looking forward to it. As I said earlier, it's about a man who is trying to get back into the United States, grew up here, but ended up back in Mexico. And in, in along the way, uh, a very complex story about him and his family and his journey and ends up in the United States Army. Without, without further ado, let's talk to our the director, Rafi Pitts. Rafi, welcome to film school. Hello. Nice to meet you, Mike. Nice to meet you as well. Um, I don't think I did a very good job of really telling the the backstory on your film here. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. And um, I know this is a story that is uh, is important to you. I know it's about things that uh, have, as I said earlier, been sort of underappreciated and certainly underreported in the United States in terms of yeah. the story of yeah. people like. Nero. So let, tell me a little about where the story came from for you. Well, I wanted to make a film about immigration because um, I've, I've always had this obsession of trying to understand why people are obsessed with borders and the need to identify themselves within those boundaries. Um, I mean, I'm my father's English, my stepfather's French, my mother's Iranian. Uh, I've grown up with these three characters, always believing that I come from one country. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's where it all starts from. Um, and, you know, all films always start from the person, or I always think that they, they start from me, something that I'm trying to understand. But, of course, because it's cinema, it's bigger than me. It has to be larger than me because it concerns. For me, f- filmmaking is a process of... Uh, I can't just make films for the art of film. Mm-hmm. As much as I love the art of film, I need to also have a purpose when I when I make a film. Mm-hmm. And here I wanted to talk about immigration. And um, where better than the U.S., country of immigrants, the mm-hmm. only country in the world that represents the entire world, because I think that there must be every country represented in this country, ironically. Yes. And yet it's a country that's so hard on immigrants. But once you, you know, start to make a film, you don't want to say the same story that you've seen. You know, we're familiar with uh, uh, Latinos coming over the border, running over the border, trying to get to the U.S. This is something that we're all familiar with. And I needed to find out what else was going on. And, um, And I came across the Green Card Soldier Program, which has been going on since the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And it's basically if you serve the U.S. Army for two years, you get your citizenship. It's the fastest way to get your citizenship. Yeah. Now, what people need to know is that um, after the 9-11 under the Patriot Act, there came the Dream Act. You know, everyone's talking about it today with DACA and everything. And with, with the Dream Act, uh, many of these uh, Latinos who were being deported um, were given the choice to remain if they join the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so they joined the U.S. Army. And some, um, the majority ended up getting their citizenship. But a, a large group of them were deported um, after serving the U.S. Army. And my story is the story of one of them. You know, I knew about this program um, back in uh, the evasion of Iraq in 2003. I'd heard right. about it. I did not know that it went back as far as you just described it to the Vietnam War. But even considering it's something that has literally been around for 50 years now or more, mm-hmm. yeah. It, yeah. it is something that I doubt very many Americans know. And I don't know how they would feel about it. I, I When I first heard about it, I thought, well, this is a really an issue that has to do with an inability to recruit enough citizens in the United States because increasingly our wars are fought by people that we don't really associate with or know. It's a, it's an increasingly small right. number of percentage of the American population is, is carrying the load for fighting our wars. And these are people mm-hmm. that are generally out in the margins of society. And in right. some ways, this is sort of a, a continuation along a spectrum of how we go about fighting our wars. So it's mm-hmm. not a surprise to hear about this, but I had no idea that this program had been in place for that long. No, it's been it's been there for a very long time. I'm actually surprised that, that the studios haven't made a film about it because they they always want to make you know war movies and they they're always looking for a different angle. I mean, we've had every, every angle right. up to the wind talkers, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, you know, even Native Indians uh, in the war, um, every, we've seen we've seen it all. But for some strange reason, the green card soldier isn't there. I hope that. One day, uh, the studios will make that film so that the entire country becomes aware of it. Um, you know, um, when I did the film, I wasn't criticizing, uh, I wasn't thinking of making a film that was critical of America, but just trying to pinpoint an absurdity that can happen in the young person's mind. Right. You know, the film is, it takes place in two halves, if you like. The yes. first half is his struggle to get to America to see if he can remain in America. And the second half is uh, the war zone. And in the war zone, um, um, I actually feel as close to him as I do to all the other characters who aren't green card soldiers, mm-hmm. who are also people who are trying to find their identity. Right. Uh, you know, there are two Afro-Americans, there's a depressed sergeant, and all these characters are all also trying to survive. Uh, for me, the war zones are always fascinating because young people think they can go out and change the world, and they lose their youth, and they lose their soul, if you like. Right. And then how they get treated once they come back is the violence that they face. Right. And um, in the case, of course, of a green card soldier, if after serving the two years they end up being deported, it's uh, I think it's an extremely violent thing. Now... What you need to know is they don't get deported randomly. They get deported for doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, the majority of these green card soldiers uh, are from the working classes, um, and uh, they're from all over the world. I mean, I focused on the Mexicans, but they're actually from all over the world. There's a large number of Latinos, but the majority of them in recent years are Mexican mm-hmm. because of what happened after the 9-11 and the Patriot Act. Right. Now, um, you know, what is fascinating to me is 
why why is it that they get deported? Now they get deported because basically, and I'm I'm saying repetitive, but basically, uh, what happens is that they they come back, they serve in the army for two years, they're wearing the exact same uniform as their fellow uh, army guys, fellow soldiers, and they come back and they believe that they're American. They're not people who are used to filing papers. Right. Uh, they grew up here. They don't think of papers. They've been fighting in a war zone. So they presume that automatically when they come home, they're American. Right. And then they do something wrong, like they buy some grass or they have a DUI. There's a couple of guys I know who are uh, in Tijuana now who were deported, who were deported for having a DUI. Now, I know driving under the influence is bad, but my argument is shouldn't we be letting them be citizens before they fly to the war zone? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I don't understand why this doesn't happen. Uh, you know, I think it's very unfair. I think once they risk their lives and they're on that plane flying out of that zone, they should be given their citizenship. I couldn't agree more. Uh, yeah, and I, I want to again. I there's there's two things that are uh, I think important about your film, and one is there's sort of bifurcation of the film. Uh, the mm-hmm. uh, the uh, it's almost it's it's probably an unfair comparison in some ways, but I it's almost a Full Metal Jacket sort of approach to the film. I mean, the way that you frame and set this film up, it's a very different story, but in many ways, there's a lot of similarities in the experiences as you described in in both halves of the film. Um, but I do really want to kind of focus back a little bit on the people who are fighting our wars. Because right. I think this is, again, as I said, this is kind of a continuum of a uh, pattern of behavior by the U.S. military. After Vietnam, there was uh, they had trouble recruiting people and I, mm-hmm. I, and I, uh, for, into a volunteer army. And over time, there's been back and forth about drafting and this and that because of this concern. And they've yeah. lowered standards. They've changed standards. They've done all kinds of things they, uh, to, to try and get more people to fight wars because – if the truth be told, the United States now has been in almost a continuous state of war with very small windows here and there. The Carter administration is one glaring example where we've been mm-hmm. fighting some sort of a war, a big war, an international war uh, for 50 years. We are, and, right. and now we, as we approach yeah. the, the 15th or just past the 15th year anniversary of the war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history, and yet very, very, very few people in the, in the United States have any connection at all to yeah. what is, continues to happen. And so increasingly, this is a more and more important part of, of the experience. And I'm so happy for you for you and for your film to, to at least bring it up as part of, a, part of the conversation that we need to have about the cost. What is this kind of internal pernicious sort of corrosive effect of, have, of being at war on an f- almost continual basis for such a long period of time, and what does it mean? And also the the the, the personalized approach to the, your film, narrowing it down in, in through the perspective of Nero, uh, it, it helps humanize these, it, these kinds of things that, that I'm talking about. So, And you did a very effective job. Uh, it it uh, of it, of being well and getting to understand Nero, uh, you know, and and to be able to kind of relate to him on on that level. Well, I, I do identify with him. Um, I mean, uh, when 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 I first wrote the story, it took it took ages to make this film. I wrote the story in two thousand and eleven, 
um, and um, I'm a little bit of an obsessive guy, and I always shoot on film, so I don't. Um, yeah, it takes takes forever to finance <laughs> finance my work because I'm I'm too obsessive. I need the negative, uh, uh, and not for nostalgic reasons. Yeah. Um, um, so uh, it took a, a long time to to do this, but what is interesting in filmmaking is that I, I always find that stories start very close to the heart, and then the more we collaborate with others. Yeah. In this case, there was a wonderful Romanian writer who I co-wrote the script with mm-hmm. uh, called Razvan Radulescu. He did films like three months to uh, two weeks. Mm. Uh, right. You know, the yeah. uh, Christian Munju yeah. film. Oh, yeah, beautiful and the, film. The Life and Death of Mr. Lazarescu. He's part of the Romanian New Wave. And, and we're very good friends. And we started writing this um, in Berlin, in Bucharest, and Paris, yeah. believe it or not, which is so far away. Now, obviously, uh, not being American... I then came out and decided to live here um, because I don't like the tourist approach of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So I lived here for a year and I met a lot of green card soldiers in the U.S. who had got their citizenship. And they're the ones who told me about this deported center in Tijuana. Um, and they said, have you met these guys? So I, I, I went all the way to Tijuana and I spent uh, several months in Tijuana and <laughs> deported Ring Bad Soldiers. And one of them became very important to the film. His name is Daniel Torres. Mm-hmm. He, he's the guy I chose as the military advisor. And it pretty much, from that moment on, from meeting Daniel Torres on, it became his story. I decided that I was going to tell his story. Mm-hmm. And so he was with me all the time. And, uh, you know, what happened to him not completely, it's not completely Daniel Torres' story, but it, he's pretty much the center, if you like, the center of gravity for the crew and myself to, to make the film. And what I also find fascinating is as you move forward with a film, you know, what I meant by it starts by the height and there's two people, then Daniel comes, so the film is moving away, then the actors come. And the actors are very important because they are telling their own story. Um, because obviously if I'm going to make a film uh, about this country, I want people from this country to tell me what they think and what is going on in their mind. And so whether it be Michael Heine playing the paranoid vet or um, Daryl Brick Gibson and Amel Amin playing the two mm-hmm. uh, uh, African-American guys in, in, the, in the war zone, or Rory Cochran being the sergeant, all these guys brought a part of themselves to the film. And so at one point, the film started to tell me how it should be shot. Mm. And that's what I found fascinating in the experience of making it, is that, you know, it starts from the heart, but little by little, the film starts to find its legs. And then it starts to tell you how to shoot it so that you don't betray it. And then it turns into an individual that you want the audience to meet. And so it's always strange when I talk about it because I feel like it's a friend of mine, this film called Soy Nero, that the audience is going to meet. That is really, and I'm not saying this to be modest at all, it really is, uh, it really belongs to a group of us, Yeah. this film. Well, well, and, you know, by the way, we're speaking with Rafi Pitts, and the film is called Soy Nero. You can find out more about the film at... uh, at www. Does anyone ever say that anymore? It's soynero.com, S-O-Y 
n e r o dot com to find out more about the film and um the the cast is really terrific and um i Again, going back to sort of the bifurcation of the film, we're in America. Mm-hmm. He's, he's struggling. Nero's struggling to get back into the country, meets up with his brother. And then there's this sort of illusion of, of success. You know, I think mm-hmm. that a lot of the film is, you know, putting to rest so much of sort of the 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 uh, the dream of America and, the, and more right. the reality of America and on both ends of the film. And so he meets up with his brother. His brother appears to be very successful, and we see what happens after that. And then we get into the part where he is in Iraq, and we have uh, the cast, again, uh, Daryl Britt Gibson, I thought was absolutely wonderful in the film, as well as, is it Amil Amin? Am I saying that correctly? Yes, Amil Amin. He's actually a British actor. Yeah. I thought yeah. They, they in particular... There's so uh, there's good acting all around, but I was really struck by their performances. Um, and the and one of the wonderful things about Soy Nero is your ability to very quickly establish a lot of backstory in not a lot of time. I I, I, th- I thought your ability to get us to identify and understand and have some perspective and context for these characters was uh, outstanding. I think being able to quickly understand where they were coming from, uh, even if it's just based on conversation or, you know, not a lot of, you know, hard facts about their life, but just understanding uh, their their points of view, uh, I thought was terrific about your film. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, again, when we mm-hmm. get to Iraq and we get to this, uh, this kind of, I think would, for a lot of audiences, would be kind of a, your uh, classic, uh, fam- let's say, familiar uh, um, incidents and and challenges of being in a mm-hmm. in a in that kind of a war. Um, you tell me a little bit about what you were sort of the the context of what you were trying to accomplish with that as well. Well, I I was I mean, there's a Beckett side to uh, the war zone. You know, it's the waiting for Godot situation, the absurdity of standing in the desert, because, you know, we have a film that starts in the desert, right. a young man running away from Border Patrol, and he ends up in the same desert. Right. Uh, because it's fascinating, you know, in uh, during all of this, uh, during all of humanity's history, Heinies seem to think that they can conquer the desert. <laughs> Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, so it's the comedy of the absurd, if you like. That's true, that's and true. And they find themselves in the desert, so they're always in the desert, and they're waiting for, uh, you know, to, I call it, no, it's, you know, they're in no man's land. That, I like the idea that it's no man's land. That's why I actually subtitle it as no man's land. Rafi, there's almost something biblical or Old Testament about what you just said. There is something of the of that. Element in it's, it. it's it's pretty absurd, isn't it? Like uh, the people <laughs> hang around in the desert thinking that they own it, and then they get thirsty and they go home. Um, it's it's uh, you know it's it's a very strange thing. So I, I I also wanted to magnify the absurdity of it, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, where four young men would find themselves standing on a checkpoint, uh, waiting uh, for the powers to be to tell them what to do. Yeah. And they're actually only there because uh, each and every one of them, whether it be the green grad soldier immigrant or the two Afro-Americans, they're all basically there because it was a way out uh, for a better life. And it's uh, very much like what you just said. You know, the army and the wars that have been going on for all these years are mostly populated by people who don't 
they don't dream of going to war zones. They dream of having a better life. And they think that by doing so, they will have a better life. Now, some of them are young, thinking they will become heroes, and others just want to have a social security. Yeah. You know, they, they, um, that's why it was so important for me to portray the two Afro-Americans as one guy coming from the Bronx and the other one coming from Compton. Yeah. Uh, because that's the reality. If we, if we go into the U.S. Army today, if one was to go out there, to the Middle East to meet them, the majority, majority of them, whether black, Latino, or white, are working class. Uh, the soldiers are working class. Mm -hmm. The officers might be middle class, but the soldiers are all working class. They're just trying to get by. They're trying to make their lives better. Mm -hmm. And they also love their country. Yes, they do. Uh, you know, But there is this thing of... Uh, uh, the, this, the, the first need is to make it better. Mm -hmm. And uh, and what I find fascinating in these young people is that they, they not only do they want to make it better, it's kind of ironic. They want to make their life better, and they think that they're also doing something for their country. Yeah. So it's that combination, if you like. Yeah. It's as though they need that recognition uh, uh, in order for them to feel better. Yeah. And, of course, they go to war zones and they see the horrors of war and uh, everything changes. You know, when I when I went to the, the uh, deported uh, camp of green card soldiers in Tijuana, uh, what I found fascinating was I met a lot of young Mexicans who were believed to be American because they grew up in America. This is something that is also very important in the film. These are kids, and this is where it comes back to what's actually going on now when people talk about DACA. Yeah. and uh, the DREAM Act. But these are kids who uh, grew up in America who don't know Mexico. Right. And they believe themselves to be American. Right. And they're of Latin, uh, of Mexican origin, if you like. Everyone's from a different origin here except for the native Indians, right? right? So they believe themselves to be American. And when you see them in the deported camps, what I find very sad is that they're rejected on one side by Mexico, because Mexico says, well, you're not Mexican. You come from the other side, and you fought for the other side, so you belong over there. And uh, over here, they say, you don't belong over here, you belong to the other side. So they're on a fence, if yeah. you like. But when you talk to them, what I find fascinating in them is that, you know, you'll, you'll meet 20-year-olds who've lost their youth because their eyes look like they're 40. But beyond that, even though they've been deported and rejected, they still believe they're American. And they still love their country, and they still want to come home. It, it, and nobody cares about them. No, it, it's it's cruel and it's heartless what we're doing. It's it's really heartbreaking. I it, mean, I, I I I really do hope that. And I'm, I, it is frustrating when I look at the news, and even today, you know, there there are mentions of uh, what could happen if they, uh, you know, if they if Trump stops DACA. Uh, you know, every now and again, you'll hear. Uh, What's going to happen to the troops? And these are the green card soldiers. Whenever you hear what's going to happen to those troops, they're talking about the dream card soldiers. That the green card, see, it's actually an irony, I should say, the dream card. The green card, the green card soldiers. They're, they're in the Middle East right now, and if they do stop this, uh, the DACA, then they will be deported. There are people who've been serving for a year and a half in the Middle East who would be deported. Right. If all of this stops, 
And this is a reality that I'm sure if Americans knew about it, yeah. they would do something about it. Well, we, you would hope so. The political, yeah. the political situation, environment in this country is so toxic. It is so easy for people. It, it's been they've our, our disdain, hatred for people that that aren't we I don't know, have there's, identified there's a divide. is there's so a constant. Uh, it, yeah, uh, there's this, you know, politicians are loving uh, making that divide, They're, and it's ruining a country it, that is anything but that. It, it's ruining um, a country. They're they're facilitating this and in and in stoking it. You're absolutely right. You know, it's a shame. It's uh, yeah. it's 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 so sad. I'm sure that a lot of those Trump voters out there who think that immigration is such a horror to their country, if they knew about these green card soldiers, they might feel differently. I I, I think they would. Um, well, I I just would love to talk to you for another half hour, but we I'm afraid <laughs> we have to to wrap it up. Uh, I, I want to let people know they can go to. Soy, S-O-Y, Nero, N-E-R-O, dot com to find out more about the film. And I also know that if you go to the Facebook page, which I believe is just, uh, was it, Facebook.com mm-hmm. slash Soy Nero, you can find out where it's screening. And it's screening here in Los Angeles at the uh, Rave Cinemas in Baldwin Hills. It's yeah. also opening at, at San Leandro down in San Diego area at the uh, Bay Fair 16. Yeah. And then in yeah. Texas, you're opening big in Texas. You have a number of theaters opening there. I know there's like five, yeah. five, uh, five cinemas over there in yeah. different cities, which yeah. is good because maybe that'll help them change their mind. Yes, I hope so. Well, continue the good work in addition to Soinero and all of the other films that you have uh, directed and written and been a part of, and the the um, the acclaim that they have received Thank as well, you, was well Thanks. deserved. I'm so glad this is our first conversation. I certainly hope that when uh, the time comes, you'll find some time to come back and join us again for uh, for another interview. I'd love to talk to you. Thank or, you for having me. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.